0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Be Bullish podcast. I'm Alex Ely, CIO of the U.S. Growth Equity Team here at Macquarie Asset Management. Thanks for listening in. Uh, Today, we have a guest, uh, Dina Pliotis. I've been working with Dina for uh, about 20 years now. Uh, She heads up our consumer uh, analyst efforts on the team. Um, And she's really a great resource for us. She really knows all about all kinds of different um, areas of consumer spending. So welcome, Dina. Thank you for coming aboard. And and also we have Jane Fisher as well. Uh, She's our director of investing here on the team as well. So welcome, Jane. Welcome, Dina. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks
2: for having me, Alex. Thanks, Alex.
0: Great. Okay. Well, let's first off, how would you characterize the consumer today, Dina?
2: Well, overall, it's Quite mixed right now. You know, structurally, you know, the underlying health of the consumer is fine. Um, if you look at debt service levels, you know, they're at 35-year lows. Uh, unemployment is, employment is strong. We've got wages up. We've got home prices up. We've got uh, equity markets that have been up nicely since the last recession. Um, so we've had a very significant increase in consumer net worth. In fact, I think it's close to $33 trillion um, in increased net worth today versus uh, pre-pandemic levels. So from an underlying health perspective, the consumer is fine. That said, though, uh, today, you know, the consumer and, and we all are facing some real macro pressures and um, uncertainties. Um, there's, you know, obviously widespread inflation. Uh, that's affecting the consumer. There's you know, fears of a recession. Um, and just things, macro conditions that are causing a lot of consumer angst out there. So, you know-
0: Where's the inflation coming from, Dina?
2: Well, the inflation is pretty much, um, you know, it's across the board in in all products and industries, but, you know, we think a lot of it, you know, some of it was probably driven by the government stimulus, but a lot of it, I think, um, has come from the pandemic itself, which caused a lot of supply chain disruptions, you know, globally. And it's been a real, you know, tough, tasked for, you know, companies to figure that out right now. Um, Is there but, any
0: light on that? How, how long will it take for the supply chain issues to sort themselves out, uh, if ever?
2: <laughs> if ever. That's, well, hopefully, you know, it's not if ever. But, um, you know, clearly, you know, the supply chain, you know, has wreaked havoc, like I said, on, on pretty much all industries and companies. Um, you know, you have to remember, you know, it, it could be very easy to shut down factories and and plants, you know, because of COVID or or whatever reason, but then reopening these factories and plants smoothly, that's not easy at all. That's very difficult. You've got a backed up, you know, um, pipeline of product that hadn't been produced. You've got new product um, orders coming in. You've got people out because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we've also had a number of bouts of, you know, of factories reclosing because of COVID, you know, um, over the last couple of years. So all that has really, you know, put a lot of pressure on the supply chain. And, um, you know, I think, you know, today it's still very difficult. I think, you know, there are some companies um, where it seems to be improving, but other companies, you know, like autos, for example, that, you know, it's still very tough.
0: There's a lot of really smart people that are are working on this problem. I, I would imagine over the next year or so that we would see continued improvement on, on supply chain.
2: Uh, yes, I would agree with you there. Um, it's just coming, the, the improvement is just coming more slowly than people originally had hoped. I think just people that were, this was an extraordinary time. You know, people, you know, had not faced a condition like this, you know, probably in their lifetime. And you know, reacting to these supply chain problems and dislocations, you know, has been difficult. So companies aren't trying to work through it. You know, companies like, you know, big companies like Walmart and Target, you know, they've got great technology. They've got great, you know, supply chain, um, you know, systems and they've got great talent. So, you know, they're going to figure it out eventually. It's, it's just, you know, a big global problem and it is taking time longer than, you know, we had hoped.
0: So lots of issues, but this isn't like 08, 09 where we, we had our entire financial system threatened. Is that correct?
2: Oh, uh, definitely not like 08, 09. I mean, you know, there are fears of a recession, you know, given the backdrop of the macro that we're currently facing with, you know, high inflation and, you know, the Fed aggressively tightening and trying to curb economic growth and, you know, bring down, you know, inflation. But uh, it's nothing like 0809 because the consumer backdrop today is much, much healthier. Um, and the bank, you know, balance sheets are much, much healthier. Neither are overextended, like they were, you know, back in 0809. So I think, you know, if we do have a recession, you know, which is a real possibility, um, it likely, I think, will be more shallow.
0: Okay, well... Being that you're talking about the pandemic, what how have consumer habits changed throughout the, the pandemic? I mean, certainly uh, things are different now than they were a few years ago after going through uh, really a, hopefully a once in a hundred year pandemic. Um, t- tell us about some of the trends that you're seeing.
2: Well, um, I'd say that the pandemic pretty much forced everyone to change the way they shopped and the way they viewed life. I mean, this was really an extraordinary time. And I think people really reflected more on their life. And in some cases, they were forced to change their shopping behaviors. Um, So what we did see is um, it really accelerated, you know, the adoption of digital shopping in general. And clearly that had been a trend for, you know, well over a decade, Um, but we saw during the pandemic, you know, digital adoption really skyrocket overall. And we also saw it in categories like, you know, grocery, and food service or restaurants, and even healthcare, you know, where, um, you know, telehealth really took off.
0: Right. Um, I have to bring Jane in on this as well. Are are you seeing evidence of of digital adoption as well, Jane?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, even from, you know, my own personal experience with the pandemic, um, I never, ever worked a day from home. And all of a sudden I was, you know, working from my house for the better part of two years. So, Uh, With stores closed, restaurants closed, you know, you were forced to go online. You were forced to use Teladoc uh, to see your doctors. And uh, I think certain of those behaviors will uh, continue. I do think other things, you know, people are definitely um, have been cooped up for too long. So they're looking to get out of their house and enjoy some experiences and kind of move on past the pandemic. But as it pertains to spending and hybrid work, I do think certain habits will be forever changed because you're forced to look for, you know, better, cheaper, faster solutions as we've discussed. And once you try them and they're more efficient, you stick with it.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I'd your, say
0: that's definitely the case at my house. My, my kids will order Uber Eats right from the couch or, or go on Amazon and order things as well. So, uh, and, and I, I don't see that changing anytime in the, in the near future. So it certainly seems that while accelerated, these digital uh, adoptions will, will continue.
2: Now, I also was going to say that, you know, to Jane's point, the, um, you know, the pandemic causing people to work from home. I mean, you know, that clearly is sticking, you know, whether it's, you know, in some cases, full-time work from home, but in most cases, it's some sort of hybrid version. And, you um, you know, I was reading a, a, a study recently from, I think it was uh, UBS, and they said that 60% of consumers are now, in, you know, working in some form of, of hybrid, you know, works, you know, situation. So I think the work from home or the hybrid work from home going forward, I mean, that's going to allow, or that did allow during during the pandemic when everyone was home full-time working, that did allow other consumer habits and behaviors to, you know, to materialize or even accelerate. And, um, you know, because people were no longer tied to like living close to their job, they could work, they were working from home for an extended period of time. It just really accelerated the, you know, migration trends that we were already seeing from like higher cost cities in the Northeast or on the West Coast, you know, to lower priced markets in the Southeast and Southwest. And, you know, I think, you know, not only were these low price markets more affordable, obviously, but it, it enabled people to, you know, buy larger homes to sort of accommodate their, you know, stay at home and work from home and school from home, et cetera, lifestyle. And, um, you know, so we saw a significant increase in, in you know, migration. Um, I, 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 I certainly
0: see that. My, my kids are, are adults, but um, they somehow still are around the house uh, quite a bit. <laughs> Uh, within, within this world. And I think hybrid working definitely lends itself to that. That's for sure.
2: You know, and, and also, you know, during the pandemic, you know, with more people just, you know, spending pretty much all their time at home, you know, they, they were noticing things around the house that, you know, just weren't working for them anymore, you know? So, you know, they were focused on, you know, upgrading their homes and not just making them look better, but also more functional for, you know, their, their new, their new sort of lifestyle. And uh, that was yep. not just you know inside the home, but also outside the home. People wanted you know better looking outdoor spaces. So clearly, during the recession, I mean during the pandemic, we did see you know spending on you know home furnishings and home improvement really surge. You know, as did you know home prices. And, right. Um, so
0: what what other um, what other tr- uh, consumer trends have been out there? Uh, even before the pandemic that have continued on and and you see uh, that are long lasting um, within the economy?
2: Um, well, there are several and I'll touch on a couple, I guess. Um, the first one I'll, I'll touch on would be, you know, health and wellness, you know, and self-care. I mean, that's been a trend, <clears throat> excuse me, for well over a decade and that accelerated during the pandemic, you know, perhaps, you know, You know, people were at home for, you know, pretty much 24-7. They, you know, were in some cases stressed out and anxious about the pandemic and what was going on in the world. And they needed an outlet. So I think even just like setting up, you know, an exercise routine, like, like walking, you know, a few times a day, et cetera. You know, that helped people, I think, cope with it, with, you know, the pandemic and get out of the house. And also people didn't have commutes, you know, they, they had more time, you know, for it and more time to just focus on themselves. So, you know, I don't know about you guys, but um, I've heard countless pandemic stories of dogs, you know, hiding from their owners, you know, they just couldn't bear the thought of, you know, being dragged out for like, you know, their 10th walk of the day.
0: Jane, are you, are you seeing more of that as well in terms of health and wellness?
1: Well, I'll respond first on the dog comment. You know, my my dog definitely would kind of find a couch to hide behind because he was just not, he's 12 years old. He's like, look at, I can't do a third walk today, mom. Anyway, but yeah, for health and wellness, for sure. I mean, even in my town, uh, the number of specialty food stores that have popped up, specialty gyms, and then all sorts of therapy outlets. There's assault therapy, there's a cryotherapy, there's a light therapy. I'm not even certain what all these do for you, but um, they seem to be thriving. I'm going to make it a point to, uh, you know, try them out and see if, um, see if it helps. And then as it pertains to my house, you know, case in point, I when working from home, there were all sorts of things that I never even noticed before in my house that all of a sudden started to bug me or needed repair. And I took the opportunity to you know, get a few things fixed and that would not have happened um, if I were still commuting every day to the city because quite frankly, I just wouldn't have even have noticed them.
0: Right, right. Just in, just in review of that, in terms of stats, I mean, 60% of people are now working in a hybrid way um, the average commute in the United States is 42 minutes in both directions. So if you're freeing up close to an hour and a half of time, that's certainly going to give you more time to exercise, more time to do things around your house. And yes, we, we had a surge during the pandemic uh, of this activity, but it, it goes on. Uh, the hybrid working sort of revolution, I would say, um, continues on in, in the U.S. And um, it's, it's pretty remarkable uh, to, to see uh, the effects of it. Um, what, what happens as we as we come out of the pandemic, Dina? What other things are are, are you seeing um, or opportunities in terms of what what happens uh, now that the the pandemic seems to finally be fizzling out?
2: Well, um, I would start off by saying that I think you know some of these trends that we've seen the digital adoption, the work from home or hybrid work from home that is definitely sticking. It's sort of becoming you know the new norm. Um, you know, coming out of the, the pandemic, you know, obviously, and it shouldn't be surprising, you know, we are seeing more people, you know, trying to enjoy themselves outside of the home and taking on new experiences, whether that means, you know, going, on, going out shopping in stores, whether that means, you know, going to restaurants, uh, concerts, theater, et cetera. And even, you know, some people are back to, to traveling again. Um, so we have seen a pickup in experiences. But I think it's also very important to point out that even though we've seen a pickup in experiences, we have also seen retailers and restaurant sales, retailers talk about their online sales have remained very strong and at elevated levels, well above pre-pandemic levels. So that just sort of you know, goes to the point that you know, this digital shopping is here to say, it doesn't mean people will never go to a store or never go out to eat and order everything online. It just means that um, it has really, that online shopping and online ordering, that is here to stay. And I think those retailers that offer a hybrid shopping experience, you know, will be the ones that, you know, continue to to do well and take share. Um, you basically have to offer your customer how they want to shop and, and you know, and convenience is important these days. So. I think we are seeing experiences pick up, but we're also seeing strong demand for digital sales um, remain elevated.
0: Yeah, well, definitely the experiences are back. My my son is a singer songwriter, and um, the concerts and and uh, you know people's uh, are, are are back essentially. there, yeah. there is no holding back like there's been for the last couple of years in terms of bringing crowds together and and having people do things. So um, it, it's good to see um, people come out of the home again and do those other things and start to see life come a little bit back to normal. Um, now, just fact, to, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, in fact, you know, I was recently reading, um, I think it was a McKinsey survey uh, that indicated that I think it was almost 50 percent of consumers say their shopping habits have permanently changed, you know, as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, I think this this uh, pandemic really did pull forward, uh, you know, the adoption to digital, and uh, it's here to stay.
0: Okay, let's shift to um, to the housing market. Uh, everyone always likes to talk about this. Uh, housing prices, of course, um, went up dramatically in many different areas of the country post of the pandemic. What what is your outlook there?
2: Well, you know, clearly, you know the pandemic and the work from home accelerated demand for housing. Um, You know, we we sort of touched on that a little. Um, We are now seeing housing demand, you know, soften and it's likely going to continue to soften um, over the near term. After all, I mean, housing prices, you know, have soared on the last couple of years, double digits in the last, each year in the past few years. And now we have rates up sharply. At the same time, um, we've got consumers that are, you know, really getting hit hard by widespread inflationary pressures pretty much across, you know, their everyday life. So I think, you know, near term housing has slowed and it'll continue to slow. Having said that, you know, there are structural factors that, you know, should continue to drive the housing market for multiple years ahead. Um, So no, we don't think, you know, the, the housing cycle is over. We think there's, you know, a lot more, you know, opportunity Uh, there. And uh, there are several reasons that we feel that way. What what, what do you mean by
0: the structural factors, Dina?
2: Well, first of all, the major, you know, the most important one is that, you know, the U.S. is facing a major housing shortage. And you can say, you know, why is this? Well, you know, there's just been chronic underbuilding, you know, over the past decade, you know, coming out of the last housing, you know, uh, bust. So um, on top of that, you know, you've got an influx of you know millions of millennials who are you know aging into sort of their home buying years, and I think these two factors, you know, have resulted in a, a huge mismatch between um, you know housing supply and demand, and um, and then you know the the other thing I would just mention, um, you know, as it relates to the housing shortage and and being you know housing being underbuilt for over a decade, um, you know you you if you if you sort of look at historical levels of housing. If you look between say like 2012 and and June of last year, there were over 12 million American households that formed, but we only had 7 million new single family homes that were built. So that created a shortage of, you know, roughly 5 million homes. And that 5 million number, you know, in the middle of last year was even higher than the 3.8 million, you know, Units of you know of homes that we were short pre-pandemic, so I think you know another way to look at just how low housing inventory is today. Not just new homes, but total inventory. You know, again, if you look back historically, you know, over the past say thirty plus years, um, U.S. housing inventory averaged um, over two million, say about two point three million units per year. Um, we hit an all-time high of about four million back in 07. And then at the beginning of this year, we hit an all-time low of about 860,000 units um, in inventory. And today, you know, we sit with, you know, housing inventories at roughly 1 million units. And and so that's well below the long-term historical average and well below, you know, the estimated 5 million unit shortage. So there's, I think, a lot of opportunity ahead.
0: Right. Jane, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Um, You know, obviously we talk as a team about this a lot, you know, from a personal perspective, I think, you know, inventory is obviously the lowest I've ever seen it. Um, You know, people, friends of mine are selling their houses years before they were planning to uh, a, to take advantage of the market and B because of hybrid working, they can now work from other locations. So they're selling, for example, in the Northeast, moving to Florida, lower cost of living, living, warmer climate, better tax structure. So again, I've had several examples where people sold their house three, four, five years before they were planning to because they don't need to wait for retirement now.
0: Well, well um, I think this has been you know, great on, you know, on a discussion of consumer trends and, and so forth. I'm just going to wrap it up investment wise here for anyone that's listening. The way we look at things is we look for long lasting secular trends within the economy, things that aren't going to end. And and while there's a a lot of clouded visibility right now with inflation and war and other things that we worry about, these trends that the consumer is undergoing uh, will last throughout the decade in many cases, because they're better, cheaper, faster ways of doing things. So it's been great that, that the two of you have been able to help highlight these and and go through them. Uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening in. And, and thank you, Dina. Thank you, Jane, for for coming on. Uh, I, I really appreciate your help.
2: It was uh, great to be here, Alex. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, everyone. Uh, and that's the Be Bullish podcast. Uh, thanks again and listen in in another couple of weeks. Bye-bye.
3: This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, Reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts, Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.